Chapter 6. Difference between science and technology. In 1868, young Edison had his 21st birthday. During the preceding year, he had mustered up those huge ambitions of a poor and uneducated youth and determined to go off to earn his fortune in the fabulous lands of Latin America. He learned Spanish and got as far as New Orleans where a friend managed to dissuade him from his dream. His two companions went on, however, on the boat to Veracruz and quickly died of the raging yellow fever. Edison went back to Boston and started reading the works of Michael Faraday. They excited him strangely and very quickly he was taking out his first patent of 1097 for an improvement of the electric telegraph. By hair's breadth we might have missed the life of this man who became the American dream, the country's most useful citizen, the benefactor of mankind, the prototype of the great inventor. One little book like A Boy's Life of Thomas Elva Edison did more to inspire a whole generation of scientists and engineers than all the science teaching of the schools. It also produced a fantastic number of better mousetraps that we were going to, but never did, make their inventors rich and famous like their folk hero. The floodgates of invention were opened here just at the time, and in the centuries since, we have seen American cars, tractors, nuclear bombs and power, chemicals and computers, television, telstar, rockets and lasers, and all the other symbols of sophisticated might come into being. This has been so much America's century that the rest of the world is now deeply conscious of a technological gap. Not only the prosperity and the military strength of nations, but also their very survival in the modern world now depend on their prowess in science and technology rather than in their holdings in natural resources or reserves of sheer crude manpower. This has now gone so far that a sort of cargo cult of technology has developed. Every underdeveloped nation, though full of poverty and illiteracy, needs to have a little nuclear reactor to bring in the magic of the new age. Worse than this, nations large and small, rich and poor, beset by the power of planning and expert advice in an age of science, find that they should be able to prevent wasteful spending of their precious funds on useless sciences and weak technologies, and instead spend only on those sensible technologies that are just right for them. The important question has arisen as to how much such technologies can be imported and how much they need to be homegrown. In the largest, most scientific nations of the world, there is even greater trouble. The burgeoning explosion of science into our society has gone at such a pace that in the U.S. and the USSR, it is quite clear that the nation is running out of sufficient allocable money and people to keep science growing in the style to which it has become accustomed. Why not now to be worried about the overdeveloped countries? Within the last 15 years, the U.S. has slipped from a place of about one-third of the world's science and has become about one-fourth. It is not yet a very worrying slip, but the process accelerates and one must get used to the idea that more and more important ideas are going to be developed, first by the competing countries, and one must look forward to a brain drain from the U.S. and the USSR too, if they let them out, comparable to that from Britain, or probably even bigger and faster. Already one can see signs of strain, as the lush federal funding for science begins to dry up and the serious competition for funds for people comes from elsewhere. There begin to be clear signs of an awakening anti-scientism. It is a revulsion and a disenchantment that takes many forms. First comes a vague feeling that science, which used to stand only for good, has now become associated with harm and evil. One thinks of nuclear weapons, of napalm and mace gas, of electronic bugs, biological warfare, and the general pollution of our environment. Then, too, one sees that science begins to sever itself from the general intellectual life. Young Edison could thrill himself to the core by reading, with little preparation, the researches of Faraday on experimental electricity that had been published not long before. And just that time, though, 
Maxwell was also publishing, and from that line of science has charged so much that the comparable research from the front and high energy physics now involves something called current algebra, which is known and can be read only by a very tiny and specialized elite of a few mathematical physicists. However clever you are, you cannot pick up current algebra and read it. Far too many books are required to prepare the way. You must get a PhD and put in four or five years as a postdoctoral student first. Technology developed from low technology that could have been done 4,000 years ago into a high technology. In fact, science has become tragically difficult all along the line. Today we have fewer teachers and less competence, relatively speaking, than in Edison's day. In 1890, nearly a quarter of the high school students took physics. Now only about 5% have instruction in that subject. Conditions are different. The teachers are obviously much better than in the olden days, but physics, in any meaningful way, has become much more difficult at any even greater rate. I hope I have painted a black and uncomfortable picture. I have done it intentionally in the belief that each of you is in some way already sold on science and technology, and that you will therefore have moved automatically into a position to defend science and to manage our affairs so as to cure or minimize the evils I have mentioned. In a way, I have been leading you astray deliberately because many of the bad things I have said are due to a very simple but tragically naive confusion that is widespread. I feel it is terribly dangerous to be naive in this area, and I want to do what I can to cure the naivete, even if I cannot solve the problems. The confusion I refer to is that between science on the one hand and technology on the other, so easily can we fool ourselves into believing that we know what these terms mean, and almost as easily can we find it obvious that they have a simple relation to each other. Pure or basic science, it is supposed, is the job of understanding nature, and what one then has to do is to apply this science, to make technology which you can then develop as you wish, to bend nature to the will of man, and in a capitalist country at any rate, to make a tidy profit too. Because of this simple model, it seems clear that from science flows all these benefits we wish, and the trick is simply that of finding ingenious ways to apply all this knowledge that we have, pushing the knowledge front before us as we go. This is just the sort of thing that Edison believed. His job was invention, not discovery. That in a way, it's typical of the sort of difference I want you to think about. Edison was proud of the fact that we could hire chemists and mathematicians if we needed them. They could not hire him. Since then, the position has turned around completely. It has become part of the status race and pecking order for physicists and mathematicians to feel superior to chemists, and they in turn to be superior to engineers. Edison can be despised even as a mere inventor and considered not a scientist at all, except for his incidental discovery of the Edison effect, which made the vacuum tube possible, and so was technology in any case. What is so wrong with any I speak being such a technologist? Why do we automatically speak of pure science as if technology were dirty? It is a calculated put-down, just as free world implies that those you are talking to are slaves. Let us, then, turn from invective and our innate beliefs and hopes to some objective study of what is involved in the sorting science from technology. In comparing these two entities and contrasting them and in determining their all-important relationship to each other, I shall avoid altogether the term applied science which begs the issue and only introduces additional ambiguity. We must, I think, agree that in both science and technology we should concentrate our attention upon research, on the cutting edge of creation, where new things are happening. If we know how that works, it is relatively easy to understand how things are among those who labor behind the research front. It is really not quite so easy as I would like to suppose, for most of the people involved work behind the research fronts rather than at them. 
What is going on? It happens. Is that science and technology are the most competitive activities man is capable of. They are much more of a rat race than business and money, for example. The competition to get to the top is acute and the operation is very wasteful, so that large numbers fail. In a strong sense, teachers of science are failures who could not get to the research front, and the technicians are inventors who never made it. Fortunately, nature works this to advantage by supplying a sufficiency of fine people who are more motivated to be good teachers than failed scientists, etc. But basically, there is a differential of the status, and of course, of salary, than we cannot ignore. The reason the system works reasonably well is that there are other rewards than money in the complex that produces scientists and technologists, teachers and technicians. There is a special satisfaction, and this is, of course, one of the keys and motivation behind a scientific career. It should be realized, of course, that in science and technology there appear not to be any absolute standards of creative achievement. A problem that is difficult is so because very few people can come near to solving it. If all people became more clever or get better computers, the problem may be solved or become trivially easy. If almost anybody can do it, it is not really worth doing. Roughly speaking, in this area we use the word excellence to mean something that occurs once in a thousand people, and genius as that which comes once in a million. Science and technology are both highly creative occupations. They both set a premium on those who can combine thoughts of interesting ways that simply would not occur in other people. Edison and Einstein can agree completely that the biggest part of their motivation is indeed getting there first, before the other fellows. Contrary to popularly held beliefs, they are beset by natural curiosity or by the hope of doing good. It appears from much more modern research that it is a competition which holds first place as an incentive. Right at this point is one of the most important and interesting contrasts between science and technology. In science you know you have beaten the other man to it if you publish first. By publishing, you stake your claim to private intellectual property. The more openly you publish, paradoxically enough, the more secure your claim that the property is exclusively yours. In technology, it is otherwise. When you make your invention, you must patent it. You must protect it from industrial espionage. You must see that it is manufactured so long before it can be copied or replaced by some other competitor. In technology, you secure private property in the usual jealous way. Strangely enough, so even in socialist countries where the inventions are national and not private property. Look at Russia's treatment of her rockets, for example. The difference, I think, emerges because if science is philosophically a process of generalization and invention of laws, nature appears very strongly to act as if there were only one world to discover. What is more, it acts as if it would be discovered in a sort of striptease fashion, layer by layer. What I mean is this. If Boyle had not discovered his law, then somebody else would have had to do it. As a matter of fact, Marriott did. If Planck had not found his constant, then we should all have been talking about Joe Bloch's constant. Not only does one feel strongly that each fact and theory is lying there waiting to be discovered, but each one, when it comes, seems to be discovered by several different people racing against each other to get there. This is creative thought of a very special sort. Boyle had problems getting credit for his law totally different from those Beethoven who getting credit for a symphony or Picasso for a painting. Sometimes one finds this very strange competition for the same prize in technology, but for the most part there is much more latitude than in science. I have a strong feeling that if the little green men land from their flying saucer and start talking with us, we shall find immediately that their science is very similar to our science. They might know more, they might know something different, but on the whole their Planck's constant must be the same as ours, and their world must have acids and bases in the liquid phase too. Science is completely supranational. It must be much the same for the United States and the Soviet Union, for Catholic and atheist, for planet Earth, or the leaders of the furthest galaxy. On the other hand, 
There's no reason whatsoever they should have seen an invention of the incandescent lamp. They might have gone on to fluorescent tubes or to fireflies. They might not have motocars, just as we do not have the sort of flying saucers. Technology is a sort of arbitrary property of the civilization, whereas science, if you have it at all, has to follow what seems to be more of a dictate of nature than a property of our brain. At all events, Boyle and Einstein have priority and property problems in their creativity that are not shared with Beethoven and Picasso, or even with the great historians and philosophers. Boyle and Einstein are forced to this open publication for an eternal archive that seems to characterize science. It is certainly the thing that makes science not only impersonal and objective, but very attractively impersonal for those bright children who are not very good at getting along with other people. The traditional scientist could win his way to fame and respect by this impersonal publication. The lonely child who curled up with a book could beat the other fellows without even seeing them being seen by them. He could also know Mother Nature and pry her secrets from her. By the way, note that I had to speak of the traditional scientist. He is very different from the scientists of this generation. If the young are not to trust anybody over 30, the same is true even more unhappily and forcibly for scientists over 30. Motivations and personalities, the very nature of dedication, have changed completely and for the better. For about 20 years now, our society has pleaded with the young to be scientists if they possibly can and has given them scholarships and fellowships and grants. In the old days, one was declared to be a scientist if one absolutely had to be, for the good of one's soul. If you had to, you did physics and starved in a garret just like the artists in Bohemian Paris. What has happened is that society has made science fairly safe for relatively normal people. The older side, so to speak, were nuts. They were very highly motivated and they were paid with prestige and acclaim in their own ranks instead of with mere money, with immortal fame among their own elite. Now it has changed. When I first came to this country about 20 years ago, the comic strip character of Superman was a sort of all-American football player. Within a few years, he changed into a sort of all-American nuclear physicist with rays and such things, and I, for one, knew that the ground rules had been a little changed. So far, I have only spoken of the different outputs of science and technology. One might almost use them for definitions of the modes of research. If, when a man labors, the main outcome of his research is knowledge, something that has to be published openly for a claim to be made, then he has done science. If, on the other hand, the product of his labor is primarily a thing, a chemical, a process, something to be bought and sold, then he has done technology. Now, let us look also at the inputs as well as the outputs. The input to a scientist must be all the other papers that are produced by his colleagues and their predecessors. It is quite obvious, in fact, if you look at a scientific paper that is full of footnotes, which are citations back to the other people's papers, also to textbooks and to papers not yet published, but on the whole it is two previous papers. When one analyzes the citation patterns, one sees that there is a very close-knit structure here. Scientific papers are assembled by a process rather than like knitting or the way in which pieces of a jigsaw puzzle are held together by interlocking with their neighbors. Each scientific paper seems to build onto about a dozen previous papers. Another way of looking at it is to say that, roughly speaking, it is like a human family, except that instead of it taking two parents to make a child, it takes about a dozen assorted parents, and they move around like a very free society, enjoying such a deliciously complicated setup as a dozen for a corn, with each combination producing about a child a year. It is not only science that works like this, but also scholarship. Research in history and in philology and philosophy also works like a jigsaw puzzle. The difference between science and the rest is simply that science grows at such an enormously rapid rate that most of it at any given time has only just been published. 
It is also like most of all the scientists who have ever lived being alive now, or nearly all scientists being very young. This has always been true, and it is not true for other brands of scholarship. Science has a trick of being eternally very young and new. Half of everything we know has been found out in the last decade or so, and this has been true for centuries and will be true for at least several decades yet to come. Because of it, science grows, so to speak, from a very thin skin of its research front, whereas philosophy and history grow from knowledge that may be quite old. Philosophers can still usually discuss questions that were very well discussed by Plato and Aristotle. They get places and philosophy moves, but is not such the positive and ever new knowledge as one can obtain in science. It used to be that scientists learned about what their colleagues did by reading the journals. Actually, they used to read books. Then things moved so fast that they read only papers. Then ever faster so they read only letters to the editor in their rapid publication journals. Now they are moving so fast that they do not read but telephone each other and meet at society meetings and conferences, preferably in beautiful hotels in elegant towns around the world. They get by in what they are now called invisible colleges of little groups of peers. They are small societies of everybody who is anybody in each little particular specialty. These groups are very efficient for their purpose, and somewhere along the line, people eventually write up their work so that graduate students can read it and get to the research front. By the time it gets published, however, it is so old that all the good research juice has been squeezed out of it, so it is not worth reading if you're really in the business at the research front. Technologists are quite different in their habits. We have already made a point of the fact that at the research front, where useful products are being made, the very thing that they do not want to do is to publish. On the contrary, they want to keep quiet until the later publicity stage when the advertising is in order. In fact, the best reading in technology is, of course. It is odd, though, that technologists do want very much to read. Just as Edison needed to have chemists and mathematicians on hand and read his way through whole encyclopedias, even libraries, at random, so today the technologist wants to read everything that is going on in case it might be useful to him in making something new and good. One might indeed say that the scientist wants to write but not read, and the technologist wants to read but not write. I believe that the so-called information crisis is due to this contrast in positions. It would not be a bad situation if the stuff the technologist wanted to read was exactly that which the scientists are writing. It used to be so in Edison's time. He could read Faraday, but he could not have read James Clerk Maxwell, who mathematized Faraday's electrical theory. What technologists want is something very different. In part, what they want is only a sort of boiled-down science, such as you learn in college, in the process of becoming either a scientist or an engineer or technologist. In part, though, what technologists want is something different. Let me read you some illustrative examples from Edison himself. They date from the period when the intelligence test score was being invented, and Edison set up a test. He called it a ignorometer, which should be answered at a level of, say, 90% right for anybody who was going to be good inventor in his workshop. Here are the sorts of things he wanted people to know. How is leather tanned? Where does the finest cotton come from? Who invented logarithms? Where is Korea? Too easy now, say Sikkim. What voltage electricity is used on streetcars, subways? Who composed Il Travatore? Who wrote Mary Poppins? What weight, roughly, of air is there in a room 30 feet by 20 feet by 10 feet? Not Edison. What is the heaviest non-metal? Not Edison. What is the breaking strength of a human ankle? The idea of having all this miscellaneous and mostly useless information on hand, not just where you can look it up eventually, is that if you know oddities like these and more, then you can make likely combinations in a flash and get places an other fellow cannot get. 
Technologists want science that has been packed down by education, and they want all sorts of unlikely things. That, in a nutshell, is why you have to learn good science, and a lot of it, even if you wish to be an engineer instead of a scientist. It is also worth noting that, according to this model, the most useful person, in science as well as in technology, would be the man who can put together unlikely techniques and bits of knowledge. In designing a college career, or even a high school curriculum, it is precisely the bright scientist or the technical kid who should be encouraged to spread his knowledge around. If you want to be a chemist, pure or applied, you should also, as Edison did, spread out into things like computers, Chinese, Buddhist literature, mushroom culture, and the geology of Sikkim. Chances are you will be not merely the only person on your block, but the only one in the world with such a combination, and you may spot the clue everybody else has looked for in vain. Having now defined something about the terrible twin science and technology, we can begin to analyze their relation. Science is a sort of growing jigsaw puzzle with a dozen sexes, and wherever there is a family of knowledge, an annual supply of knowledge, children are produced. Old knowledge gives rise to new at an exponential rate. From time to time, new subdivisions of knowledge appear, but the general process goes on without let or hindrance, without fail even in times of poverty or war, without hurrying in times of need. There is, strangely enough, very little man can do to make knowledge come more or less quickly or to make it come in the directions we may wish. The fruit of the knowledge tree has a habit of wanting to ripen in its own good time. I probably exaggerate for dramatic effect, but something like this seems to be going on. Somehow or other, though we wish it very much and have done for years, we are not yet at the stage of knowing enough to make a cure for cancer. Technology, the other twin, grows, I believe, in a very similar fashion. It is evident to any historian of technology that almost all innovations are produced from previous innovations rather than from an injection of any new scientific knowledge. There is a sort of state of the art in the technology which works very much like the research front in science. We do not see it so well just because the technologists are keeping quiet rather than shouting from the rooftops as the scientists do. Indeed, I have often felt that one of the prime difficulties in writing the history of technology is that the major job is the antiquarian one of transferring the state of the art at any time into written form. The research front in science already exists in the form of written ideas, so the job of the historian is much easier and less antiquarian. We have the position, then, that in normal growth, science begets more science and technology begets more technology. The pyramid-like exponential growths parallel each other, and there exists what the modern physicists would call a weak interaction at the educational level and the popular book and the scientific American stage that serves just to keep the two largely independent growths in phase. For the most part, technologists use the science they learned at school and from popular acquaintance, and the scientists use the technology that they have grown up with. Only rarely, but then dramatically in making a historical mountain peak, do the twins show a strong interaction. In the 17th century scientific revolution, there was a strong flow from the state of the odds of the artisans into the new scientific apparatus, which exploded ancient science and brought in the modern experimental tradition, with the telescopes and microscopes, barometers and thermometers, air pumps and electrostatic machines. In our own generation, the Industrial Revolution has moved to a new level, mainly through physics, and Edison's electricity in particular, where science is finding its way back into technology, for the most part, science has not helped technology much, but now and again, you get anomalous and traumatic events like transistors and penicillin. Again, one must be careful. These are the grand exceptions, not the rule. Mountain peaks are not typical. You cannot judge all scientists by the standards of Newton and Einstein. You cannot judge the technological impact of science by the case of transistors. 
there is no intellectual difficulty in allowing, for the most part, that science and technology are only loosely connected systems with very different types of people involved, with very different motivations, aid, purposes, and even trainings. There is, however, a moral difficulty that is particularly interesting and important in an epoch where the exponential growth of the overdeveloped countries has begun to reach saturation and maturity. The money is giving out, and the nation is beginning to exercise a new caution about what it spends its money on. The usual temptation of scientists at this point is to lie in a most flagrant and bold fashion. There is indeed a long and honorable tradition about lying for the sake of pure science. When Archimedes wanted to pursue his pure geometry, he asked his uncle, who was the local National Science Foundation, for financial support on the ground that he would be a useful man to have around in time of war. When war came, being a very bright individual like the late Robert Oppenheimer, he started something quite new, unrelated to his pure science, and burned up the enemy fleet. Leonardo da Vinci had the same technique, promise them technology, make good if you must, but really give them the pure learning that you want and you know they will need in the end. Although one cannot give any strong proof that science is directly applied at any time to make technology, you must, I think, accept it as a matter of trust that without a live tradition of science you cannot engage in technological growth. We really have to stoop so low as to lie about it again and maintain that the latest, biggest accelerator will help us make useful things. Do we need to support mathematics for the direct utility? No, not at all. We can adopt a science for science sake policy, provided we are clear that this can always be justified by the weak but vital links with technology. We need science so that technologists may grow up immersed in it. Do not avoid the intellectual argument that we also do it because it is the most difficult and elegant thing we can do. Like Everest, it is there. The question of justification only becomes important because we ask the society to pay for it, and there must therefore be some sort of social contract. Some reason must exist for society to pay in our age. If you spend on that, you must go without something else. The tradition of libertas philosus fande, freedom to follow learning wherever it may lead, is not questioned yet again in the way in which it was questioned by the ancient Romans, by the French revolutionaries, and most recently by communist Hungary. They all thought they could junk useless sciences and pay only for the useful ones. The civilizations and states were visibly ruined by this tragic policy. It cannot be played like that. The reason is the educational process. The interesting way in which science differs from non-science in the colleges is in the feedback to the education machine. In the non-scientific departments like history and English, nearly all the people who survive to take a PhD go back into college teaching. In the sciences, only about 20% are recycled in this fashion. The other 80% are hired by society to do various jobs in research front science and technology. In the non-sciences, what is society paying for? Are they making teachers to train people to be teachers to train people, etc.? No. The end product that is paid for is a particularly large load of teaching to students below the PhD level. Society is paying for the education of its young citizens and culture, and the higher education only exists as a means of reproduction for the teachers. In science, it is different. We are not being paid on the whole to reproduce ourselves, which we do, as elsewhere, for love. Our job is clearly to produce the 80%. That is why scientists who succeed their job do not, in general, want to teach the young. They have a quite different stake in society. For every man in the colleges and universities who does research and replicates himself at a rate of exponential growth for fresh PhD students, there are four or so who work in industry or in government making the things that society wants to buy. The outcome of this analysis may now at least be perceived in a rational fashion. Each society has to have science, willy-nilly, whether it likes it or not, because that is what our civilization is about. 
and the sciences are their own masters, producing new knowledge in proportion to the amounts that we already know. In fact, if we take the basic sciences, physics, chemistry, mathematics, astronomy, biological science, one can find that in every country in the world that has real education at all, and in every state of the union, each of these sciences is being pursued at almost identical levels. In fact, each entity spends about 0.7% of its gross national product, GNP, or wealth on scientists. For every $100 million of GNP, or personal income, in any one country or state, there happens to be about one physics paper, ten chemistry papers per year, and so on. Nearly all countries play the game, or do not do it at all. With technologies, it is different. For the highly developed countries, it turns out you can spend only up to about four times as much on creating new products. As we have said, for every scientist, the system produces four technologists. The difference is that all countries and states do not have the same mix. States and countries with a lot of mineral wealth, like Texas, put a lot of their 80% manpower production into the earth sciences, and they steal them from every other state and country that has surplus. So it is elsewhere. In technology, you can buy what you want up to a set maximum. In science, you have to buy more or less what nature will give you, in quantity as well as in quality. In society, even though society pays, there is still some sort of impersonal dedication to nature's rules. In technology, there is always something more than competition. You are supplying something that society wants to buy, and you must be careful that it is something that you want to give your life to make. Your young person going into technology has a citizen's responsibility to judge where to put his weight. Much more than that, in an age of pressure, all citizens must be clear that they constitute the society which has the power to buy, or not to buy, the product of any given technology. Revulsion against such things as napalm is not to be leveled at technologies but at the ordinary political processes whereby society decides it wants to buy such a product. Finally, I must point out that nowhere in the interaction between science and technology more damnably difficult for science than in the region of medicine, since the reforms by Abraham Flexner, we have had an excellent truce between the science of medical research and the provision of the technology of healing the sick and maintaining the well. Now, quite suddenly, both the science and technology have exploded, largely because legislatures are often sick old men, and anyhow, society is always desperately eager to spend more on medicine than anything else. Molecular biology has produced underpinnings for the science of medicine, and suddenly the medical schools are full of researchers scurrying wherever the glorious new knowledge is taking them. At the same time, the very affluence of society is skill and planning, and the efficiency of medicine itself means that we need very large numbers of the medical technologists and their attendant technicians, MDs and nurses. I think that what is happening bears close analogy to the recent divorce between physics and engineering, and the gradual loss of status and salary of the engineers. Unfortunately, however, we do not clearly understand the mechanics of the scientific careers and education. We are hesitant to manipulate the technologists with all the political brutality that seems to be needed. It is a classical situation where we need a technology of administrating technology, and we do not even have a decent scientific knowledge of the way that science works can only suggest that the most urgent need in science teaching and in planning is more intense thought and analysis, not about the facts and theories of science or the technicalities of technology, but about the place of science and the technology in science, the history of these things, and also about such naive, obviously simple things as the relation between science and technology, and the difference between them.